words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our through analysis and through context to give some meaning to the chaos in the world today. And I kind of caught my attention because there is a, a basic desire, a longing that we all have to make sense of the world and to make sure that, uh, um, to make sense of the world and, to, and to, to feel that history and life has meaning. We, we recoil against the, the words of Shakespeare and Macbeth, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. We just kind of naturally recoil against that. And the Christian view is that you know, life does have meaning, and history does have a, a point. It's not something that we can look out and construct on our own or analyze from current events. The meaning of history has been given to us as a revelation. The meaning, the point, the goal, the direction of history is given to us in Jesus Christ. And that comes by revelation and then we are to live in light of that revelation. That makes sense of everything. comes to us by revelation, and then we are to walk in that truth. God has been directing history so that all of his plans and his purposes are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's a key word in our readings today, fulfilled. Jesus says that in the gospel reading. These things I said to you when I was with you that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The Apostle Peter, in his sermon, after this great miracle, the crippled man was healed, said that the Christ had to suffer in order to fulfill the scriptures. And so Jesus comes to his risen disciples and reassures them. In the midst of their confusion and their doubt and their half-belief, they're trying to make sense of all these reports that are coming in about the resurrection of, of Christ. And he comes and he stands among them and he assures them that God purposes, that God's plan is unfolding here. Everything has gone according to the Lord's intent. He convinces them that it's true that he is alive. Luke has this interesting line, they disbelieved for joy. And they were marveling. So they... They were marveling, they were filled with joy, but they couldn't quite make sense of it. They couldn't quite believe because it was too good to be true. I don't know all that was going in their hearts and minds, but maybe you felt that way sometimes. It's just too good to be true. But then Jesus is convincing them here, it is true. As he uh, takes a, a piece of fish and he uh, verifies that a vision, a ghost, can't eat broiled fish. <laughs> this is real. He's risen from the dead. And then, he, and then he gives them these words. He kind of chides them gently, but, but he's telling them that you should have known this. Verse 44, he says, Then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He told them over and over again that this was going to happen. He predicted his passion and his death and his resurrection. But their understanding had been clouded. Their, their hearing had been like a teenager, selective. They didn't want to hear or think about God's part of the plan that didn't fit into their theological box. 
But Jesus says, these are the things that I told you, that everything written about me must be fulfilled in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, those are the basic divisions. That's how Jews divided up their Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, into three categories. We divide it up a little bit differently. But the law the prof, uh, of Moses, the first five books, the prophets, major and minor, and some of the historical works we'd call them today, and then the Psalms, and that word just stands in for a whole category of, a whole genre of literature that includes the Psalms, but also Job, Ecclesiastes, some other uh, books, wisdom literature, uh, which is called the writing. So Jesus is saying, he's making this astounding claim that the entire Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, has been pointing to me. It's been fulfilled in me. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus is saying that God, throughout the centuries, has been working this plan, weaving his purposes in the history of Israel. There's a unity to the Bible. There's a direction to history. And Jesus is the key. Jesus is the key. How many of you here have an ESV study Bible? I know there's several of us that have an ESV study Bible. If you have an ESV study Bible, and I encourage you, if you don't, uh, to, to maybe pick one up to invest in an ESV study Bible. But in the introductory essay to the entire Bible, there's this essay called An Overview of the Bible, a survey of the history of salvation. And in that essay, the author explains the uh, patterns, promises, themes, the types and the shadows that are related to Jesus Christ and how those things are fulfilled in the New Testament. So when you read that essay, it gives you a sense of the unity of the Bible. And you can begin to read the Old Testament through Christ-centered, uh, a Christ-centered lens in a Christ-centered way, which is how, as Christians, we ought to approach the Old Testament. So I commend that essay to you. But just let me talk about some of the things that he uh, touched on. The Old Testament uh, contains predictions of the Messiah that uh, Jesus fulfilled, predictions about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled, sometimes very explicit. So, for example, Micah 5.2 is a prediction that the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem. There are pictures or symbols in the Old Testament of the work of Christ that foreshadow the work of Christ. For example, the the spotless lamb that the priest sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. That lamb foreshadows the work of Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, The priest himself is a type. He prefigures the work of Jesus. Jesus is our high priest and As the book of Hebrews explains, he's a greater priest than any of the priests of the Old Covenant. The priests of the Old Covenant uh, performed their duties year after year, and then they died, and it was done, and then another priest took over. But the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is our eternal priest. When he offered up the perfect sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is the eternal priest. His duties have been completed, and yet he still is there interceding at the right hand of the Father for us. So he's the great high priest, the greatest high priest. Even the the role of king, the anointed king of Israel, prefigures Jesus' kingship and his rule and his reign. 
Jesus is Lord, the risen Christ is Lord. He is king of all nations, of all people who bow to him as Lord and Savior. And so throughout the Old Testament, God has weaved in these threads, patterns, types, predictions, shadows, themes, and if you pull on those threads, you're going to find Christ in the New Testament fulfilling all these things. Someone has said that God in the Old Testament is like a a playwright. A playwright who introduces early on plot lines that he'll later develop in the story and bring to a climax and then finally to a grand conclusion at the end of the drama. And and Jesus' death and resurrection is the climax of God's story and we look for the day that finally our faith will become sight and he will rule and reign on this earth forever. Another image that I ran across, an Old Testament professor gave this illustration. He was in South Africa, and he was driving through a scenic valley that was covered in green, um, just below a a dam and and a lake there. And so he's driving into this valley, and it's covered in lush greens. And then then when he came back through the valley, the the valley was, was white a half hour later. What was going on? When he looked behind him, the valley was green again. (laughs) What happened was they were going through a valley with with flowers that turned towards the sun. So when they drove into the sun, they saw the, the backs of the flowers, the green backs of the flowers, maybe a spot of white here or there. But when they reversed course, they saw that the white flowers were pointing towards the sun. And he says that's how it was with the disciples. When they read the Old Testament uh, before Christ and before his resurrection, they understood some things about the Messiah. But then in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the whole Old Testament lights up like the flowers in the field. It begins to make sense. And so we find that with the Apostle Peter, who in our, in our uh, reading from Acts is proclaiming that Christ had to be crucified, that he had to suffer in order to fulfill the scriptures. He's now reading, he's now preaching the Hebrew Bible, his scriptures that he grew up with in light of the crucified and risen Christ. Christ is the key to the Bible. This is the same Peter who you remember what he said when Jesus said the Messiah had to suffer. He tried to straighten out Jesus's theology of the Messiah. No, no, that's not going to happen. But now in light of the encounter with the crucified and risen Lord begins to preach that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is is, uh, sufferings predicted in the Old Testament. The Messiah's sufferings predicted in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, we read it on Good Friday. Those texts are so important. But you remember what Isaiah 53 says, speaking of the suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities. Upon him would be laid the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. And I heard uh, Old Testament scholars say that that particular chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, was quoted some 50 times in the New Testament. This was a key understanding for the apostles of who Jesus was, the suffering servant of God who would take away the sins of the world. The resurrection, and Jesus says in, in, in this passage in our gospel that, that the Messiah had to, that the Christ had to suffer 
and on the third day rise from the dead. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The resurrection is kind of more difficult to find in the Old Testament as an explicit prediction of the Messiah. But again, there are themes there. There are themes in the Old Testament that lead to this understanding that God vindicates a righteous sufferer. So, for example, Psalm 22. Again, that's a psalm that we quote in our Good Friday liturgy. But it starts with this cry of dereliction from an innocent sufferer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the end is this cry of victory, of vindication. At the end of Psalm 22, there's a prediction that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of all the nations will worship before you because of the suffering of this one. So you had suffering at the beginning and vindication at the end. And that is a pattern, that is a theme that fits the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, it's significant that Jesus was quoting that on the cross. He wasn't just thinking about the suffering on the cross. I think he was looking forward to the vindication that was to come. When you sing a hymn, you remember the rest of the lines as you get started. The rest of it follows. And Jesus was singing a hymn that he had grown up with. And he had known through Psalm 22. But at any rate, there, there are these patterns and predictions and shadows and types that are pointing to Christ. And, and God has fulfilled all his promises in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what God has done. But then look at what Christ calls his disciples to do. God's story is not finished. We have a role to play. Look at what he says in uh, verse 47 and 40, uh, through 49. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead. God has fulfilled that. And then here is their mission, the mission of the apostles. And this is our mission as well. It's clear and succinct here that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What is the mission of the apostles? It is proclamation. It is declaration. It is a public announcement. It is heralding a message that forgiveness of sins is available in Jesus Christ and that people ought to turn to Christ and repent. And that simple mission and message that the apostles had to bear witness to the risen Christ and to call people to repentance and to receive the forgiveness of sins, that's our mission as a church. Quite simply, to proclaim these things and to stand firm on these truths. We want people to repent. We want people to know that God loves them and has provided a way for them to be forgiven. But we want them to repent, which means to turn around. You're going in one direction in life, away from God, and we want them to turn around and face God and the redeeming and loving work that he's provided through his son, Jesus Christ. We want them to repent. Repentance is lining yourself up with what's real and, and, and going in the direction of reality. And God is the greatest reality. So if you're running from God, you're running from reality and the truth. And it doesn't matter if you, you, you think that you're the Lord and you're the king. God says, I have a king. Jesus is his name. And you need to line yourself up with his reality. 
It's like when you're driving, you, you're, in a, you're, you're driving and, you, and you think you're in a, a speed zone of 40 miles per hour, and maybe you're going about 45, and you find out it's 30, and you find out the hard way. You're greeted with colorful lights and an opportunity to contribute to the city coffers. And it doesn't matter if you thought it was 40 or it should be 40. The reality, it's 30. And it's the same way with what we're saying to people to turn to God. The reality is that there is a God who loves you, but you're running from God. And the reality is that he's provided a way for you to come back and to have peace with him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Line up with that reality. And every person that comes through those red doors, that's what we want them to hear. That's what we want them to get, this proclamation, this witness. It doesn't matter if they come here because they want to participate in the choir, which is wonderful, or the art class, or any of the activities that we have. Those are wonderful events, the Bible studies. But ultimately, the reason we want them here is to line up with what's true, what's right, with God, and to serve his Lord, to serve the Lord and his King, Jesus the Messiah. And so that's our message, and, and that's why we, we do the things that we do. That's why we have the activities that we have. That's why we went to Highcroft the other, the other day on Saturday, yesterday. And we did that as a witness. We, yes, we want to bless the community. We want to, to uh, tell people that we care about the community. But we hope that through that, that will soften some people's hearts to this message of Jesus Christ, and that they will be softened, and they will turn and embrace the salvation that God offers. You are witnesses, Jesus says to the apostles, and he says that to us. And we just can't forget about that, that we are called to be witnesses. This is our mission. Those who have the torch, the Greek proverb says, those who have the torch must pass on the light. We've been given this light. We've been given this gospel. We've been given this message. Who is God calling us to share it with? We are witnesses who proclaim what God has done in Christ. We invite people to turn to him. And that's the part that we're to play in God's story. Sometimes it does feel this way, doesn't it? Like Shakespeare said, if you look out on the world and maybe your own life, feels like sound and fury signifying nothing. Look at the chaos, the calamity. Look at the inhumanity of man toward one another, the terrible atrocities. We can shake our heads and wonder, is there really any transcendent purpose or meaning or order here? And that's when we need to go back and look at the risen Christ. The one who stands in the midst of the apostles with the scars that bear the marks of our forgiveness and who says to us, peace with you. The risen Christ who fulfilled all of God's ancient promises regarding the Messiah. And because he fulfilled those past promises, we can look forward in trust to the future promises to come, to the rest of the story, the resurrection of the dead, the new heaven and the new earth, eternal life under his reign. History is his story. History ultimately is his story. It's God's story. And the risen Lord Jesus stands at the very center of that story and invites us to play a role. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have fulfilled these promises in Christ. We thank you that uh, so many of us know these promises to be true in our life in a personal way. That, Lord Jesus, you purchase our forgiveness so that we can have peace with you. That by your stripes we can be made whole, we can be healed. We thank you, Lord God, that we have hope, that you're in control, that you're sovereign in this world, and that one day uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. We thank you, God, and in the meantime, as we look forward to that hope, help us to be empowered by your Spirit, to do the work that you've called us to do. Help us to be witnesses and to be steadfast in this proclamation. We pray for any person here today who needs to turn back to you. Maybe they've been running. Maybe they've rejected. Maybe they've been discouraged. But you're calling all of us to turn back in repentance and faith and trust. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts and minds. For Jesus' sake, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.